Welcome to episode 30 of Justice with John Carpe, the podcast from the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. I'm the show's producer, Kevin Steele, and today I'll be speaking with Jay Cameron, a lawyer and the litigation manager at the Justice Center. Today our topic, unlike a lot of recent shows, is not COVID-19 related. We will instead be talking about the federal liberal gun law Justin Trudeau's cabinet brought in this past spring, in the middle of the pandemic lockdowns. So in a way, it is COVID-19 related, even though I just said it wasn't. This new ban has already attracted several lawsuits seeking to strike it down, and the Justice Center announced on July 13th they will be joining one of those court actions. But let's paint the bigger picture first. Jay, the federal government is attempting to remove firearms from law-abiding Canadians. Can you explain how that can happen in a country like Canada? It was a long and interesting story to the whole thing, Kevin. Mm -hmm. On May 1st, 2020, and this is during the heart of the pandemic, of course, Justin Trudeau's cabinet issued order in council PC 2020-298. And what it did was it amended regulations under the criminal code to reclassify approximately uh, 1,500 legal firearms and change them from unrestricted status uh, to prohibited status. And Just like that. Just like that. And it happened overnight. Mm-hmm. And so uh, there are hundreds of thousands of uh, firearms owners in Canada, and there are tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of these particular firearms in law-abiding hands. And in some cases, they've had them for not just years, but decades. And of course, when they purchased them, they, they had a plan and they had a reason for purchasing them and they were entirely legal and they bought them in reliance on the law. And uh, they have they've had them for years, and these are people who are legal owners. So they're they're not criminals. They're not people who have abused uh, their ownership of firearms. They're people who are uh, law-abiding Canadian citizens. And all of a sudden, they wake up on May first, and they are told not only that their firearms are now prohibited, but that they are technically criminals for owning them. Because the law says that uh, you, these items cannot be owned, uh, and but for the amnesty that was uh, introduced until April 30th, 2022, these people would be arrested for breaking the law. They'd be charged with a criminal offense, and so it's a it's an extraordinary thing to have the government confiscate lawful lawfully owned property. And so the story gets a little stranger as well, because the federal government uh, said that not only are these 1,500 firearms illegal, but uh, variants of them are also illegal. And so what the RCMP has been doing is quietly, behind closed doors, updating what's called the firearms reference table. And they're changing, so far they have changed the classification of more than 200 additional firearms to prohibited based on their interpretation of the word variant, and that word is undefined. And so uh, nobody knows when their firearm might end up on the prohibited list as, uh, as put there by the RCMP. And so, of course, there's been a broad public outcry about this. And uh, justifiably so, uh, because you, for the first time in Canadian history, you have this massive confiscation of people's personal property. And the government is saying, well, we're going to give you some money. Uh, they haven't said how much uh, to this point or when that's going to occur. So you have the, the government taking taxpayer money, which, uh, <laughs> which lawful fire owners pay to the government in the form of taxes. And the government's going to give some of that back to them after essentially stealing their property. So uh, Well, they're not stealing it if they're paying for it, right? Isn't that, isn't that their reasoning here? Or? I'm sure that's their argument. But if I come to your house and I take your lawnmower and I give you $200 for it, um, and uh, I do that without your agreement, uh, as far as I'm concerned and as far as the law would be concerned, that's stealing. 
Mm-hmm. And so the only way that uh, the government gets uh, gets around all of this is to is to somehow justify its action uh, pursuant to law. And so uh, at least five separate organizations or five separate lawsuits at least have been launched against this order in council. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how the whole thing plays out. Right. Well, I understand from the press release that the Justice Center put out <clears throat> on July 13th that uh, you're actually seeking intervener status in another lo- one of these lawsuits. That is correct, isn't it? Yes, we are currently preparing our materials. And mm-hmm. uh, I was actually on a, a call today with uh, the federal court and uh, mm-hmm. listening to all the various parties and the government uh, make their pitches regarding, regarding a timeline and uh, you know how to proceed because it's a very big case. You have a a lot of organizations, like I said, and individuals who are launching challenges, and then you have the government response to that and cross-examinations and experts and and then a big court hearing that has really significant implications for the rest of the country. Okay, so the call you were on today, was that in relation to the lawsuit that you're seeking intervener status on? That that is the Canadian Coalition of Firearm Rights? Is that what you were on the call for? Is that what yes, that's, that case? that's one of the five lawsuits that's been launched. Okay. And so uh, we haven't filed our intervener application uh, and materials yet. Um, oh, okay. But we will, uh, that, that will, that will occur within the next little while here. We're still prepping the argument. Right. Okay. Well, that, that's actually what I wanted to ask about was the argument because uh, when I was speaking to other people at the Justice Center about uh, this topic, they're saying, well, we prefer to use the term property rights, because that's what we're going to be arguing, I guess. Um, so instead of using gun rights, I guess, uh, you're going to be arguing from a property rights standpoint. Is that correct? We're going to be arguing from a, a constitutional perspective. And so I, I can explain okay. sort of where we're coming from uh, on sure. this a little bit. So the Canadian Constitution divides legislative power between the federal government and the provincial governments. Uh, and that, that power, that lawmaking power is apportioned to either parliament or to the provincial legislatures. And so it's not apportioned to the governor in council, which is Prime Minister Trudeau's personal, uh, personally appointed cabinet. It is appointed, the lawmaking power is appointed to parliament. And the reason that is, is because Canada is a democracy and it has a democratic form of government. It has, it's, Canada, of course, is a constitutional monarchy, but we have a democratic form of government where people elect representatives to represent their interests in government. And that's a safeguard for the citizenry because mm-hmm. their representatives go to parliament on their behalf and represent their interests. That's the way that it's supposed to work. And so you have this safeguard that the people have a say in the laws that will govern them through their representatives. And, and what the order and council in this particular case has done is it's bypassed that process. And so uh, it's really an act of opportunism by um, the Trudeau cabinet because, of course, they passed the order and council on May 1st, right in the middle of the pandemic, when the parliament was basically shut down and and uh, so it happened on the sly, and they mm. avoided uh, the scrutiny of the people's representatives. They avoided all the questions about, I mean, this is just isn't just one firearm. This right. is 1,500 firearms. So I mean, you would think that the people's representatives would want to know, well, why this one? Well, why this one? Well, why this one? And there would be a study committee, and there would be analysis, and maybe there would be opposition, there would be uh, amendments proposed. None of that happened because they did this in in an arbitrary fashion overnight and uh, and the whole country is left scrambling to pick up the pieces. And and so that's a very concerning thing because it raises questions about the legality of what occurred. Can cabinet simply take people's personal property, which they have owned for years and decades, that they have not abused, and just simply take it away from them. Is that legal? Right. And of course, the Trudeau government says, well, this is entirely legal. 
we're within our rights to do this. And, and they point to section 117.15 of the criminal code. And that section says that the governor and council, which is cabinet, may make regulations prescribing anything uh, that is to be or may be prescribed. And so it sounds like, well, they can, they can, if they want to prescribe these firearms, they can. But then subsection two of this same section says, in making regulations, the governor and council may not prescribe anything to be a prohibited firearm, a restricted firearm, a prohibited weapon, a restricted weapon, a prohibited device, or prohibited ammunition, if in the opinion of the governor and council, I'll come back to that, the thing to be prescribed is reasonable for use in Canada for hunting or sporting purposes. Now, a number of these firearms are used in sporting events, tailored specifically for that particular type of firearm. And the people who own them are not able to compete in these events because suddenly their firearm is illegal. Not only that, but many of these firearms, in fact, you could argue, I think a compelling argument could be, uh, could be made, that all of the firearms are suitable for hunting. I'm not sure what a, what a firearm looks like that isn't suitable for hunting in the context of these particular 1,500 firearms. These are all either single-shot or semi-automatic firearms that function in exactly the same way as firearms which are still legal. So you're thinking, you know, I mean, it's the, your audience might say to themselves, well, Maybe these firearms, they function in a different way, and that's why they were, they've been made illegal. Not so. They function in exactly the same way as still legal firearms. And so uh, a lot of them are semi-automatic, and there are many semi-automatic firearms that are still legal, and there are, there are single-shot firearms. In fact, the Order and Council also makes illegal, makes prohibited, uh, at least, at least 122 caliber plinking rifle, which is like a little, you know, a gopher rifle, um, and, uh, and several shotguns. And so it's, it's a very, very haphazard list that has been compiled by the federal cabinet. It's heavy on politics and it's, it's light on common sense. And so the, the question now is what can be done uh, to challenge what has occurred, because you have this you have this provision in the regulations that say uh, they can't reclassify a firearm if, in their opinion, the thing is reasonable for use in Canada for hunting or sporting purposes. And that that term, in the opinion of the governor and yeah, council, I was say, you know, yeah. is is uh, it really creates a, a a moving target. It creates a lot of uncertainty in the law and. We've challenged legislation uh, on the basis of the use of similar wording because it creates uncertainty in the law. For example, previous governors and council, previous cabinets, did not reclassify these firearms as prohibited. In fact, many cabinets have come and gone over the course of decades, many decades, and these firearms have not been reclassified, never. Yet mm. all of a sudden, uh, the Trudeau cabinet comes in and and they uh, and they reclassify them because, in their opinion, the thing to be prescribed is not useful for not reasonable to use in in uh, for hunting or sporting purposes. And of course, they haven't they haven't defended that decision, right? It's not like there's any transparency to this. They haven't said, right. well, this is why, right? We have some compelling reasons why these are not suitable for hunting, right? There's nothing like that. Right or sporting, they basically just did it, and they and and they basically have just defied the Canadian public and said, well, uh, if you don't like it, you can do something about it. But until until then, this is the law of the land. Well, they've used terms like assault rifle and military style rifle. These are the words they're using in their propaganda or their effort to win the public over. Uh, I've read in uh, some of the sites that are with groups uh, challenging this, that they deem these terms somewhat meaningless. I don't know if they uh, you're encountering them already. Uh, 
you've seen this you've seen this right assault style rifle or military style rifle is that a matter of opinion as well you know i mean in the opinion of the council do you think uh, it yeah i mean what is they can change their opinion <laughs> what do, what do those terms mean assault style yeah, well, military style is that cosmetic it can't look a certain way right it functions the same as still lawful mm-hmm. firearms so why are you banning it? Is it solely on the basis of aesthetics? Well, I mean, that's that's not a lawful reason to take property from somebody because you don't like the way their property looks. If it functions right. substantially the same, it's still lawful property. That's arbitrary. It's not a proper use of, of, of lawmaking power. Uh, the other thing is, is that how are people to know what the law is? You know, if, if, if you're a firearms owner and, and you have this these items uh and they're and they're they were legal when you purchased them you bought ammunition for them utilize them for various purposes how are you supposed to know when uh when this reclassification effort says that your property is illegal right the rcmp Mm. aren't they're not linked up with every person in the country you know they're reclassifying these these firearms based on the word variant and and that's totally their subjective Subjective interpretation again is mostly. I think it's all, it's almost entirely or mostly cause it's a cosmetic thing. Well, we think right. this is a variant of of these other things that have been banned: military uh, style firearms or assault style firearms. And so we think it looks sufficiently like that for us to ban it. That's totally arbitrary. And it's it strikes me though also a little bit beyond police power here because it sounds like you're saying that the RCMP are creating law. Is that what they're doing by adding variants to this? They're saying something is illegal that wasn't formally legal. In other words, that becomes the law. That is what that is what's happening, and it's really it's really concerning. It's, it's very disconcerting. Mm. Uh, whenever you have uh, firearms, are uh, it's a political hot potato. It's controver- You know, it's a controversial subject. People have strong opinions. But imagine it was mm. something else, and you had the RCMP making law behind closed doors based on an order in cabinet that was made behind closed doors. There's nothing democratic about any of this. Right. Uh, and so it is really, it is really an example of, of authoritarian use of power as opposed to, uh, you know, subjecting what you're doing to democratic checks and balances. And, and it's scary. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, this was brought in, I think, just, just over a week after the shooting in Nova Scotia. Uh, I think that was purposeful. I know that uh, it doesn't get mentioned much in uh, what people are talking about, but uh, it seemed like it was a definite attempt to, I guess, use public sympathy on it, on that particular topic. Yet, you know, we know very little about that. Does that come up at all in, as you're looking into this? Yes, it does, and and mm. the individual who committed that uh, that crime, uh, and the crime is a tragedy, uh, but that that crime was not committed by a lawful property owner. That was mm-hmm. that was committed by somebody who was prohibited from having firearms, and who used weapons that had been smuggled in from uh, either another province or from another country, and mm-hmm. and so. And so you're going to use public sympathy to stigmatize and, and punish and, and, and take the property of, of lawful Canadians. And it's, again, it's a, it was an act of opportunism. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, um, that doesn't seem to get explained very much. I know it's a, it's a difficult aspect of this, but it does seem very much. Are you saying that the, uh, the order in council is an act of opportunism, or the were you referring to the crime? Just to be clear here, uh, no. The order, the order in council is is right. a capitalization of this of a tragedy to do mm-hmm. something that um, is going to upset a lot of Canadians, and and is as and it is an exceedingly questionable. Um, the legality of the act is is questionable, and I would say is patently. Uh, it's it's exploitative and it's 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 not mm. legal. It's not a lawful use of of the lawmaking power. 
Right. Of course, they have attempted to explain that this was part of their uh, election platform and they were intending to do something like this, yet they they chose this particular moment to do it. And I don't know whether that adds uh, – well, I shouldn't say adds ammunition. That's kind of <laughs> – Rather poor choice of words, I guess, in this particular situation. Uh, does it add to f- you know, fuel to the fire? I only use expressions. <laughs> <laughs> what do I say? Okay, and now I totally forgot what I was going to say about it. Okay. Well, anyways, no, I mean, it's, it seems to me that, you know, if it is an exploitive act and they obviously exploited it with this tragedy and it is an attempt to use an order in council, then it should be fairly easy to win your case. Now that's me. And I often say, I'm not the law talking guy here. Do you see this as a, a difficult one or is this going to be a, a, uh, an easy one to argue in law? I think there's different opinions about that. Uh, mm. and I, I could talk about that uh, momentarily, but I'd like to just circle back to the point about, uh, it being part of their of their election campaign, mm-hmm. it's fine for you to talk to the electorate about your plan to do something, but you still have to subject your plans to cabinet or uh, to parliament. You still have to subject right. your plans to parliament, and and that hasn't happened. And so they can say during the election, this is something we're planning on doing all they want, but doing it is another matter, and. Mm. Uh, the people have a right to weigh in and to scrutinize the laws that are being made, which deprive them of their lawful property. And so that's it, it's it, to say, well, we said in our election campaign that this is something we were going to do. People say a lot of things in election campaigns. That doesn't, mm. That's not lawmaking. That's grandstanding. Well, let's face okay. it. Okay, so I guess uh, they won't be able to use that in court. I guess uh, the, what I'm driving at here is, you know, we've got the political fight on this issue, and we've got now the legal fight. They have taken it out of a political realm and put it into the courts, um, and you're saying it has to go back to the political realm. Is that what you're attempting to do when you intervene and you fight this case? I'm, I know you're intervening, it, but what exactly are they seeking, I guess, in their court uh, date? That is the people that you are supporting. Are they seeking to see the have the whole thing thrown out or thrown back to parliament? What are they seeking? They're looking for a, a number of different things. There's they're looking for an injunction, mm. number one, uh, preventing okay. the confiscation of of property and the enforcement of this law, pending the determination of the constitutionality of the order in council. Uh, they're challenging the ordering council on the basis of a number of different things uh, from everything from uh, section seven rights, security of person, life, liberty, and security of the person under section seven to illegal seizure to, um, to an unconstitutional delegation of power to the RCMP, uh, which I think the, the case for that is very strong uh, because mm-hmm. the RCMP are making law and uh, they're doing it without any oversight whatsoever. And uh, so, uh, you know, that aspect of things is very good. I think that they're all, they're challenging the, uh, the constitutionality of the, uh, the section in question, um, I believe, uh, because why uh, uh, section 117.15 create uh, subsection two creates these exceptions, right? You cabinet mm. can't reclassify these firearms if they're in the opinion of the governor in council, if they're, suitable for hunting or sports shooting. Well, why are those the only two criteria, right? Why, why isn't, why aren't other things also in that provision? For example, if you're a rural property owner and it takes the police an hour and a half to get to your house in the event a grizzly bear breaks through your front door or somebody burglarizing your personal property, uh, breaking into your house, why isn't self-defense a lawful reason to possess firearms. You have a right to life. You have a a right to security of the person. You have a right to defend Mm -hmm. yourself against uh, aggressors and and the police are a long ways away. And rural, rural property crime is out of control in Canada. Um, So why don't you have a right? Why isn't that one of the reasons why if you're a law abiding citizen, 
uh, and you're not abusing your ownership, why isn't that a reason where the government can't take your firearm away? I mean, after all, you've purchased it, right? You earned the money. You purchased it. You bought ammunition for it. You're, you're trained in its use. And then all of a sudden, the government says, well, or the police say, well, you can't have that anymore. Mm-hmm. And so that's a question that's, uh, that's going to be raised in this case as well. Right. Well, of course, uh, we as Canadians watching a lot of American TV are steeped in American law. I have to ask you, in Canada, do we have a right to self-defense? What uh, right do we have to self-defense here in Canada? Is that in our constitution? Well, you have a right to life, liberty, and security of the person. And so there are self-defense provisions in the the criminal code, and and you do have a right to defend yourself to the same extent that force is threatened against you. And so if somebody breaks into your house with a gun and they are threatening your life, uh, you have a right to defend yourself uh, in a similar fashion. And, uh, you know, anything anything less uh, would be would really it would erode your ability to to protect yourself in, in what is uh, and what and, and what has always been an uncertain world where um, people uh, sometimes try and take advantage uh, and and try to criminalize and hurt their fellow neighbors and um, and that's just the reality of the world that we live in well in the uh, justice center press release uh, it gives uh, the items in the uh, CCFR notice of application at the federal court and uh, number four of the five that you have listed there says, quote, the exercise of the regulation-making power by the governor and council was and is irrational and contrary to clear fact and all available evidence. Uh, what do you mean by, ir- or what do they mean by irrational here? In, irrational in law? What exa- where exactly are they going with that one? What they mean is that it's not rationally connected to an objective. And so to take oh, okay. away... To take away, uh, what's the objective? Their objective is to to keep society safe, ostensibly, is 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 uh, is what their their claim is. Uh, okay. But but removing firearms which are in lawful firearm owners' hands, which are in practical reality, Kevin, the same as other legal firearms, right? There might be aesthetics, uh, but they mm. but. But they are firearms which function the same as other legal firearms. They shoot the same ammunition. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they function the same as far as their uh, rechambering of rounds using the the reloading mechanism, semi-automatic reload reloading mechanism. And so uh, the the removal of these firearms is is irrational and and contrary to clear fact and all available evidence. So I mean CCFR is expert. In, in firearms, and, and they know they have intimate details regarding each of these particular firearms. And so uh, they're going to present detailed evidence at the hearing of this regarding uh, these, these now uh, prohibited items. That's but, 1,500 firearms. That's going to be a long hearing. It is. Sorry, <laughs> Sorry go ahead. Yeah, it is. Uh, yeah. And, and, and so, but what what they're really underscoring is is that this is it's an arbitrary and an ideologically based property confiscation and mm. and it's not it's not justifiable when you start peeling back the back the layers and looking at what they've confiscated and what they've they've left remaining and so there's some other there's some other issues as well with what with what the order and council does like they've They've uh, they've made some ambiguous um, rules regarding uh, the the bore size of firearms uh, and saying anything over 20 millimeters is uh, is is prohibited. Well, how do you measure that? Right? Is that with the choke in a shotgun or is it without the choke? Right? And they haven't specified. And and they've um, they've said that anything that that uh, fires a projectile at over 10 with over 10,000 joules is prohibited. But how do you measure that? They haven't set that out. And, um, and so there's, there's those types of things which are going to be part of the legal challenge on this case. 
uh, which is really the, is, is the technical, um, is the technical realm of, of, uh, of organizations like CCF, CCFR and the other, um, applicants in this matter. We're more concerned about the avoidance of democratic checks and balances, the fact that parliament was avoided, the fact that, uh, lawmaking power is in the hands of parliament, not in cabinet. And so if this isn't something that is authorized by a law, and uh, it's fairly clear that uh, a lot of these firearms are very suitable for hunting and sport shooting, then then the Trudeau cabinet has usurped the power of, uh, of parliament to uh, confiscate property unlawfully. That's what we're concerned about. And then they passed further lawmaking power to the RCMP so that they can affect a confiscation of property. And, and that's also undemocratic. And uh, we're also concerned about the general trend of these types of laws in Canada. You see um, you, there's, a, there's a current court challenge, which is the Justice Center commenced against Bill 10 in Alberta. And, and the reason why the constitutional challenge was commenced is because, again, during the pandemic, um, the the uh, UCP opportunistically jammed through this law in 48 hours saying that during a public health emergency, ministers have power to remake the law, rewrite it, amend it, right? One person mm. making laws for millions. And, um, and so that's, that's, that's the sort of thing that hasn't been done in Canada, uh, you got to go back to the Second World War and the confiscation of property, uh, property and internment of Japanese Canadians in uh, internment camps, and, and that order was made by Celt, uh, governor by the governor and council by cabinet. And you have to go back to that shameful period in Canadian history before you find this type of of law being used, and it predates. Uh, the modern world it it's from a time period when most of us weren't alive mm. and uh it hasn't faced constitutional challenge um in our lifetimes really and 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 it also predates the charter and right, so yeah, obviously right and so you know, the charter came in uh in 1982 and so a lot has changed in canada and yet you have this sudden authoritarian use of power, which is, uh, it is a relic of days gone by. And you go back into the Middle Ages and, and the confiscation of property by kings or religious leaders, uh, popes, uh, you know, if, if, uh, if this particular religious, uh, person, uh, they don't like your beliefs or they don't like what you do, they take your property. Uh, they they prevent you from participating in society. You lose your your licenses to to be a professional. Um, you know you can't transact. Maybe you lose maybe you lose your life. And there's no checks and balances, right? It's it's uh, what the king says it or the pope says it or or you know and then that's the law. And out of the history of that abuse, that gross and oppressive authoritarian abuse comes laws like Magna Carta, which protect uh, the citizenry from this type of abuse from the government. And one of the most concerning things about what we're seeing in Canada with some of these laws, and the Ford government in Ontario just passed a similar uh, bit of legislation, uh, Bill 195. Uh, similar to the Alberta one, is that what you're saying? That's correct, yeah. Similar to okay. Bill 10 in Alberta. What we're seeing is is that there are three there are three branches of government in in the in the system that we have in Canada for a reason. You have the executive, which is cabinet, but you have the legislature, which is the lawmaking power, and they're separate. And the reason they're separate is so that the executive can't make laws. Mm. Oh, you mean, so in other words, in contradiction to what has happened here, exactly, so, exactly. Okay. And then you have the third branch of government, which, which is the judiciary, which sort of which sort of is the ultimate arbiter of the law and so when the executive gets out of line uh, or the legislature gets out of line uh, the judiciary can step in but what you have here is you have the executive making law and and then you have of course the RCMP making law and that's that's very concerning because it is an avoidance 
of the checks and balances which exist in the modern system. Uh, it's avoiding the representatives of the people, and it's and it is it is treading ever closer to authorita- authoritarianism and 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 dictatorships. This is the way they function. It's not it's not too strong to use those words because this is essentially the model where the executive mm-hmm. makes the laws, and if you don't like it, uh, that's just tough. Right. No recourse except the courts. Is that what we have? We still have recourse to the courts here, obviously, right? We have recourse to the courts, and so. Uh, that's that's where this is headed, and um, you, a, a judge is going to have an opportunity to weigh in and look and uh, look at see what has happened and the way that this has all played out, and determine questions of constitutionalism and legality and and uh, it's going to be it's going to be a landmark case. Oh, really? It's going to be that? It's that big, is it? Oh, it's, I mean, I know it. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, it's very significant. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, this is. Uh, there has never been a confiscation in Canadian history on this level by a government that I'm aware of, uh, where where suddenly hundreds of thousands of of lawfully owned items are suddenly confiscated by a government without without uh, clear justification and transparency and process. And I mean, this is really it's unprecedented. And so right. the the case is very very significant. So this is order in council with a minority government as well. I, we never actually tossed that little aspect into the mix. The fact that they were in a minority situation, really. No, so, that, I mean, that, that's significant to me anyway. It is significant. Uh, the, the government has been propped up by the NDP, the federal liberals, and uh, parliament was suspended with the consent of the NDP. And so, uh, you have, you have a, a dangerous situation where I don't, I don't think that anybody is, uh, you know, seriously claiming that parliament can't function. I mean, of course, the claim is being made, but it's not credible. Parliament mm-hmm. can function. Uh, you know, you, if Walmart can function, parliament can function. And, uh, you know, there are, they are, the world is opening back up. Uh, but you still have this uh, this avoidance of of parliamentary scrutiny to the exact uh, the acts of the executive, and that's that's concerning. It should be concerning to Canadians. Mm-hmm. Well, Jay, I wanted to ask you about your job at the Justice Center. You're given the title uh, litigation manager, and I'm not quite clear on what it is you do. It sounds pretty good. <laughs> Do you basically organize the place? Uh, you know, I I have certain files which I'm involved in, uh, so I litigate, mm-hmm. and uh, and then I also have a, a role in case selection and in uh, managing some of the inquiries which come into the justice center and uh, deciding which lawyers uh, get involved in which cases and. And sort of organizational and managerial uh, duties at the Justice Center. We've got a lot of cases on the go across the country, and you know we're growing, and we have uh, lawyers spread out from Ontario to British Columbia, and uh, and so it's 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 complex, and there's a lot on the mm-hmm. go, and uh, the the trend of uh, of modern governments these days certainly is less towards liberty and more more towards uh, authoritarianism. And so there's, there's no shortage of work to go around in Canada. Um, no kidding. Yeah. Right now they're violating everybody's charter rights all the time. I didn't anticipate that when I started this podcast with John at the beginning of the year, <laughs> so it <laughs> right. just kind of went nuts. <laughs> so I guess you must be hopping. It That's is. All I'm saying. It is a very, very busy place. Uh, the justice center mm. these days. Um, you know, we've just launched a, a challenge to the refusal of the Minister of Immigration and Citizenship to process normal passport applications. Right? If you mm. if you're a Canadian uh, citizen or resident, you have a right to leave, remain, uh, or re-enter the country. That's Section Six, Sub uh, Sub One of the Charter. And uh, yet, we know in practical terms, you cannot leave the country without a passport. 
and you cannot re-enter the country without a passport. So you have all these Canadians who are all over the world, and uh, their passports have expired, and they'd like to come back. And they can't because their passport application is not being processed. And you have Canadians who want to leave the country to go visit relatives who are sick or um, to go uh, to go deal with personal matters in other countries. And you know, there are hundreds of flights leaving Canada uh, for international destinations on a daily basis now. Uh, if not on a daily basis, certainly on a weekly basis. There, you, know, you can go on Expedia and you can look and see all the flights going all over the place. So the world mm-hmm. is opening back up. But if you don't have a passport, you can't go. And, um, and so we have sued the federal government over its refusal to, to process these passport applications. And the, the infuriating thing is for the people who, who want pat their passports renewed is that the government has said, well, you have to prove to our officials that your travel is sufficiently urgent and it's for a valid, urgent reason, uh, in order for us to condescend to process your application. And, uh, you know, some of our clients have said, well, we want to go visit our family. Our family member is, is having personal issues and we want to go down and help. And uh, the government says, well, that's not sufficiently urgent. Uh, so you have to stay in Canada. And, uh, well, how long is it going to be? Well, we're not, we don't have any information on that. <laughs> and so, I mean, that's not. There's no, uh, what is the explanation? The government hasn't provided one. Why it's not processing passport applications in a normal fashion. Mm-hmm. Does it, what is it based on the, the challenge? Is it a charter challenge that you're using in that regard? Uh, what right do we have to get our passports? Oh, so it's a straight mobility uh, argument uh, okay. under six, section six, subsection one of the charter. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's, uh, it's, it's essentially saying that, uh, refusing to process passport applications and, and instituting this test, this arbitrary test whereby some bureaucrat decides whether or not your reason for travel is sufficiently urgent. That's unconstitutional mm. because it's an interference. It's an unjustified interference with your freedom of mobility under the charter. Right. And they have to, do they have to use that demonstrably justify thing to it to do that or uh like do they have to justify it somehow under law because they're violating the charter is that that is that what they have to do because you say you don't know why they're doing this why they just taking time off because they don't want to bring people into the office or you know what's the deal here right i don't quite get it no and there hasn't been a there hasn't been a very good explanation or any explanation so yes so I, I think that it's very clear that refusing to process passports is an infringement of mobility rights. And so okay. the question is, is, is it justified? And the government has said very little on that subject. And I, I anticipate that the argument is going to be, well, there's a pandemic, right? We can't process the applications. But again, the fact is, is that the world is reopened. Walmart is open, right? You have mm-hmm. businesses which have hundreds of employees and they're at work. So why are the government's employees not at work? Is it the unions? Is it uh, is it some other reason? Uh, is are they updating the system? We don't know. They haven't said. Okay. So and you're going to force them to say. You're saying that's going forward. Then it is going to court, or it's not just a matter of sending out warning letters at this point. No, we have sued. Uh, okay. The lawsuit has been filed, and uh, um, there will be further announcements regarding that in the days ahead. Okay. Any other big ones coming around that you've been managing as the litigation manager? Uh, there are, um, and, and, you know, some of them I'm not at liberty to talk about, but, uh, certainly the long-term care issue is, uh, that is, that is all, that is on the boil, uh, because you have Canadian citizens, residents who have been locked in their rooms in these long-term care facilities and lots of them have mm. died. And uh, the ones who haven't died have, many of them have deteriorated uh, tremendously, cognitively or physically or both. And, uh, and they've been locked away from their family members for months on end. And people want to get in and check and make sure because conditions in some of these places are atrocious. And, and you've read the reports probably about that, mm-hmm. where yeah, the military was you know, involved in yeah. going into some of these care homes. And 
you know, it's really a heinous thing. And so you hear about, you know, this group claims to be the most marginalized. This group claims to be the most oppressed. There's nobody more oppressed than the elderly in a long-term care facility uh, and the other people in, in those places who have been on lockdown. And, um, and so that we had, we had a, a bit of a false, st- false start, uh, a, a couple of times where, you know, people write to the justice center and they say, uh, we want you to take this case. We want you to, you know, we want you to bring a court application. We say, great. Are you, are you willing to be a litigant? Yes. Yes. We're, we're willing to be a litigant. And then, uh, you know, people start thinking, well, you know, are there going to be repercussions against my loved one in long-term care? If I sue the government or if I sue this care facility, what's going to happen to my loved one? Uh, exactly. And so then they, they say, well, you know what, we're not prepared to sue. Um, we're afraid of what the response is or any repercussions against our loved one. And, Mm -hmm. um, and so we've had that scenario, uh, on a number of, a number of times. And, um, but, uh, we're moving forward with it and, uh, we have some, uh, some applicants who are lining up and it looks like they are willing to sue. And so the, the materials are being prepared and that is in the works. Um, and so, and again, that's a big case because if you're a child, um, your parent has the ability to exercise your section, section seven rights on your behalf mm-hmm. because you're a child and, and you're too young to exercise them for yourself. So your parent exercises them for you. But if you're an elderly person in a long-term care facility, it's not like your charter rights have expired. You are still a Canadian citizen. You are still you have rights. You have fundamental rights under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and and these people's rights have been in some of these government-operated care homes have been trampled on to bits. Right? They can't. They can't go out. They can't see loved ones. They can't leave to go worship. They can't. Some of them have their husband or their wife in the same facility. They can't go down the hall to their husband or wife and see them. And this has been the situation for months. And uh, it's deeply distressing, but it's sort of tucked away in a corner. And unless people talk about it, uh, the public isn't aware because, you know, these people are in, a, in, this, in these care facilities and they're locked away and they're, they're suffering in silence. And it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, how you judge or how you, how you um, treat the most vulnerable in your society is uh that's how society is is judged that's a paraphrase of something that gandhi once said and um there's there's real truth to that and uh and so now the justice center is committed to litigating this issue and uh the the government's not making it easy because they keep changing the rules regarding long-term care facilities and thankfully you know there's been some positive movement towards opening things up so that people can get in and see their loved ones um Will that end the litigation then if they do it? Also, I mean, we're talking about elderly people here. They don't have much time. Will their passing end the litigation or will the litigation go forward even if they pass? In other words. Well, we would argue that it's not moot, that uh, that there there needs to be a reckoning um, because there's constitutional rights at stake and there's implications for the rest of society. And I also should say that it is not only the elderly in these long-term care facilities. I got an email from somebody and she was quite right. She said, uh, you know, my daughter is 27 years old and she's in one of these long-term care facilities and we can't get in to see her. Um, and she had, she has had some sort of accident and she's, um, she's disabled and, uh, she's in one of these facilities and they had been providing this essential caregiver role. They come in, they help bathe her, they help feed her, they help to feed the other people at the table, right? They, they socialize with her. This is their daughter. They love her. And they can't see her because, uh, because, you know, because of the lockdown. And, um, that's, that's, that's been really, it's been really hard for a lot of people. And it's something that weighs heavily on the, on the staff at the justice center because you want to help and you have a circumstance where, you know, courts are closed and, um, you know, governments are saying, well, it's not our fault. We've changed the rules. It's the long-term care homes and the long-term care homes are saying, well, it's the government's fault. And, you know, meanwhile, people are shut away from their loved ones and it's, it's hard, Kevin. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, not to really change the subject, subject, but I want to just take that, something you said, and take it back to the initial uh, thing that we were talking about in this podcast, and that was the gun uh, challenge or the property rights challenge. Uh, you had used the term there, you had said there has to be a reckoning. 
And that's what I'm wondering if the government dropped the uh, their gun legislation, would you continue on? Would there need to be a reckoning here? Because you're challenging, I think the the gun law is the reason to challenge the government's right to pass these kinds of laws in a situation like the pandemic. Because they are also the ones that, you know, I mean, it's the government that proclaims the pandemic. And so uh, it's not like there's oversight in that. So I, I'm wondering if if there has to be a reckoning, I guess, in challenging that power as well. Is this something that might disappear with uh, a simple wave of the wand? Or is it something that you have to pursue even if the government backtracks? So the government would almost certainly argue that if the legislation doesn't exist – uh, anymore, if the law doesn't exist, if they if they do away with the ordering ordering council or they reverse it, um, that the the issue is moot. Right. Um, and and so and, and depending on what has occurred and and what does occur, I mean, hypothetically, it could be moot, um, mm-hmm. but not necessarily. And, and the reason is is because if a government rolls back uh, the legislation which had created the infringement, right? There was an infringement. We know that it occurred, right? It's being litigated. Uh, but the legislation which created the infringement no longer exists. Still the infringement occurred. And right. so the position of the Justice Center on some of these cases where this issue has arisen is that there needs to be a reckoning mm-hmm. because somebody has fundamental rights and freedoms under the charter. They were infringed by government and whether or not the law, which created the infringement still exists. Still, there was an infringement of, of rights, which are fundamental in a free and democratic society. And so the government, the government must answer for it through the scrutiny of the court, uh, and, and a declaration made so that, uh, future government action, future government laws can have direction. And so the Canadians can have additional protection. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I asked that question because I'm always looking to the next pandemic and uh, the subsequent abuses of power that uh, we may see coming down the pike. So uh, I guess that moot uh, determination that is done by the court, then the court decides whether something is moot or whether it goes ahead. Is that, is that basically it? Yes, the that's right. That's okay, right. Yeah. Court will, and there's a, and there's tests uh, mm-hmm. for the question of mootness, and and then you get a decision on the the subject. Oh, okay, great. Okay, all right. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to add at this particular point? I think we have got enough uh, going on it here. Yeah, I think we uh, ran the gamut. I, you know, well, I'm, that's okay. I mean, it's I'm 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 sitting here just melting. I mean, I can barely uh, keep my concentration up because I'm just boiling <laughs> yeah. at the moment. I am. I'm sweating like crazy. I know, and it's tough because you can't have a fan because it makes noise on the podcast. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, no, I don't mind uh, wrapping it up at this point. We've been speaking with Jay Cameron, the litigation manager at uh, the Justice Center. And uh, thanks, Jay, for coming on and uh, telling us about this latest challenge and uh, explaining your duties. We hope to have you on again. Thanks so much, Kevin. It's been a pleasure.